This episode of The Witch Wave is brought to you by Witch Digital. If you're a witchy small business owner, hello, then listen up. Are you tired of feeling like the only digital marketing help out there is some ultra-modern agency filled with mansplainers? Do you wish there was a digital marketing agency made by and for people like you? Yes, you, my Witchwave listener. Then let me introduce you to Witch Digital, a team of marketing witches based in Virginia and New York City. Whether it's branding, a new website, or helping you make sense of social media, the Witch team has helped more than 20 small businesses in the past year alone achieve their goals. So if you've been putting off hiring someone to help you with your digital marketing efforts, consider this your sign. It's time to take the first step by reaching out to the team at Witch Digital. So head on over to witchdigital.com, and in this case, witch is spelled V-V-I-T-C-H, and mention the Witch Wave to save 10% off your first service. This episode of the Witch Wave is brought to you by Earth Spirit. Earth Spirit is a tiny, woman-owned and operated business in the Pacific Northwest specializing in handcrafted intention candles, all-natural apothecary products and teas, and unique hand-hammered jewelry. Everything Earth Spirit offers is made by hand in small batches and infused with the magic of earth elements, intention, and love by owner, crafter, and head shop witch, Erin. Earth Spirit combines the elements of the earth with the essence of spirit to create truly unique products. Check them out by visiting Earth Spirit at earthelementspirit.com or on social media at earthelementspirit. And Witchwave listeners can enjoy 15% off their purchase with code WITCHWAVE. Find your magic with Earth Spirit. The world is filled with bewitching people, and you might be one too. Welcome to the podcast where art is magic, magic is real, and reality is stranger than dreams. I'm Pam Grossman, and this is The Witch Wave. Hello and welcome to The Witch Wave. A question I get asked a lot during interviews is, why is witchcraft so trendy right now? Or some variation of that, why is the occult so trendy? Why is astrology so trendy? Why is tarot so trendy? Etc, etc. And I know why people are asking it because, yes, by lots of metrics, it's clear that an interest in magic and paganism and astrology, tarot, so on and so forth, has been on the rise in recent years. You can see it on social media. You can see it in the many books and films and shows about witchcraft. You can see it reflected in music and fashion and on and on. 
I get it. I understand where the question is coming from. And there are certainly different answers that I've developed over the years to acknowledge why that might be and what needs and desires magic can help us meet and hopefully fulfill. But I confess that I've also started to bristle a little bit at the framing of this sort of question and then at the subsequent trend pieces that are written about witchcraft and the occult overall because they often belie the journalist's ignorance and biases about the so-called supernatural as well as the ignorance and biases that the journalist is often assuming the reader has. There's often an assumption and an implication that an interest in anything magical is silly or outre, and it often gets, as I'm so fond of saying, either trivialized or sensationalized. And so the journalist wants me, the interviewee, to somehow explain to their readers why this alleged occult craze is capturing the hearts and the imaginations of the quote-unquote mainstream, i.e. the normal people, right? And I just really want to break down why, even if that framing is innocent, it has colonialism and racism baked into it. Because this doesn't acknowledge the many, many cultures whose engagement with the so-called supernatural or otherworldly or spirit world is really normal. And it also doesn't acknowledge the many thousands of years of humanity overall practicing forms of ritual, myth generation, and spirit relation and veneration that is very much a part of all of our shared history. Though in some cases you might have to go back a couple generations in your own lineage to find it. Now, I know these journalists usually probably mean well. Let's assume they do. But their implied assumptions that spirit work of any kind is weird reinforces these racist and colonialist ideas. I'll also say it's pretty hypocritical in many cases because dominant religion, and I'll just say particularly Christianity, often utilizes the same tools of invocation, ritual, petition or prayer to a higher being, and spirit communion that witches and other spirit workers utilize and have utilized for centuries. But that's a whole other conversation. But the idea of magic being at its best weird and at its worst demonic and therefore threatening is a very white, Western European notion that is also relatively recent. So if you yourself, my darling listener, find yourself in a position to write about the occult or to speak about it in public or do any work around this where you're communicating ideas to other people, all that I ask is that whenever possible, you try and acknowledge that engagement with magic is 
and has been very normal for most of human history and still is in many cultures and contexts throughout the world. And if you need a model for how to do this, I just saw a really great example the other night of someone who I think is really wonderful and is a public person who thread this needle really well. And that is John Oliver. On his comedy news show on HBO last week tonight, he was talking about the recent trend of psychedelics being used for therapeutic purposes. And he talked about the current interest and popularization of this happening now. And he talked about the current interest and popularization of this that's happening now in the quote-unquote mainstream. But he beautifully contextualized this by, first of all, talking about earlier times in history when psychedelics were in the public spotlight. So that's him saying, hey, just because this is big right now, this is not the first time that we've seen this. So let's give historical credit and acknowledgement to what's happened before. And even better, he also acknowledged the many indigenous cultures who have been utilizing psychedelics in their own healing and spiritual rituals for thousands of years. So I guess the takeaway here is be more like John Oliver. <laughs> Give credit where credit is due. And if you're going to explore so-called fringe topics in spirituality in your work, make sure you remember that magic is only fringe if you are living in a society that is dominated by colonialist, white supremacist thinking. This is why I adore today's guest, the astrologer Diana Rose, whose approach to interpreting the sky's messages incorporates her deep knowledge of history and her heart-forward respect for the many different peoples who developed their own systems of astrology across the globe. I cannot wait for you to hear her thoughtful and expansive ideas about all things cosmic in just a moment. But before we get to that, first let's check and see what's come through on The Witch Wire. Who is it? Witches! Leah writes, Dear Pam and the Witch Wave, I'm a practicing witch and college student currently taking a cultural anthropology class. While the material is fascinating, my professor often frames issues like the oppression of women, social inequality, and colonization to be morally inevitable, even okay, in an attempt to be objective when studying different cultural perspectives. We recently spent a week on the topic of witchcraft, and I was struck by the way he perpetuated negative ideas about the witch. His information was based on an outdated article written by an old white man. He wrote that anthropologists define witchcraft as, quote, evil magic performed in secret, unquote. And because witchcraft can only take place in secret, there is no evidence for it existing and that modern witchcraft and Wicca are illegitimate because they are public and benign. 
He said nothing about how accusations of witchcraft are often used to punish the underprivileged and took no care to address the perception of witchcraft from the cultural perspective of practicing witches. In one breath, he both delegitimized and stigmatized witchcraft in front of a whole new generation of anthropologists. I want to be someone who studies the culture of witchcraft from a different perspective, and I wrote a gentle but firm discussion post for my class introducing them to my practice, but inspiring academia to give up their love for outdated, biased articles is something else entirely. I know you also studied anthropology in college. How do you balance your esoteric practice with the limitations that traditional academia seeks to put on witchcraft? Hi, Leah. You are correct. I was a cultural anthropology major in college, and I also triple minored in religious studies, art history, and creative writing. And I did all this because at NYU in the early 2000s, this was the best way that I could come up with to study magic ritual, symbolism, and consciousness in an academic context. First of all, I just want to say that since then, there are lots of programs that have sprouted up at universities throughout the world, which more specifically focus on the esoteric and the occult, and I probably would have gone down that path if such things existed back in my day. For example, Rice University now through their Department of Religion, offers a focus on what they call GEM, or Gnosticism, Esotericism, and Mysticism. And classes in witchcraft, or the archetype of the witch in general, are offered with far more frequency at colleges now. And I know this both anecdotally and experientially because I'm sometimes invited to come speak at these classes. And it's so exciting and so thrilling. I say all this to A, reassure you that not every academic department or professor is as misguided, shall we say, if we're being nice, as your current anthropology professor seems to be. So please don't be turned off from this path of study entirely just because of him. It doesn't sound like you are, but I know how shitty a discouraging teacher can be. So I just want to emphasize that there are other programs and teachers out there for you to connect with down the road if you feel called to who will approach witchcraft with more nuance and more respect. And I also mention this because B... I do want to really affirm for you that based on your description, this guy seems like a really shitty anthropology teacher in general because he is breaking one of the most basic tenets of anthropology, which is that an anthropologist must try to fight their own biases and blind spots and to incorporate the notion of cultural relativism whenever possible. As you probably know, Leah, cultural relativism is the idea that one should not judge another culture based on one's own notion of normalcy. In other words, don't judge another culture based on the standards of the culture that you grew up in because normal is a relative concept. And this is a kind of response to a long, very unfortunate history of 
old, primarily white, primarily dude anthropologists who exoticized and otherized other cultures, who considered them primitive or unintelligent or unscientific. And so cultural relativism is a stance that says, you know, those guys were wrong. No one culture is inherently better than another culture or worse than another culture. It's all relative. And you have to look at a culture's values and practices relative to itself and its own context. Now, in terms of what you can do, I think it's wonderful that you were brave enough to share your own perspective and experiences with witchcraft with your peers. And perhaps you did that with your professor too, I'm not sure. But if you do want to go further with your professor, I don't even think you have to expose that you practice witchcraft unless you want to. You can simply tell him that ideas about witchcraft have evolved significantly particularly in the last 75 years or so. And you can link to some books and articles which support this. This is good scholarship, right? It's not just you voicing your opinion, but then you're backing it up with some resources and materials that he can look at if he's open to it. Ronald Hutton's book, The Witch, A History of Fear from Ancient Times to the Present, is both academic and accessible, and it does a really thorough job of covering this material. And there's another book called Waking the Witch, Reflections on Women, Magic, and Power by someone named Pam Grossman, and you may want to check it out. I hear it's pretty good. But also, just know that this is one professor in one class, so if you don't end up making inroads for whatever reason, there are definitely more witch-friendly teachers and programs out there for you if you are called to go deeper in your own academic explorations. And you can use this bad experience to inspire you and ignite your own inner fire. Sometimes we learn how we want to be based on bad examples of what we do not want to be. So this could be a real blessing in your life. And... Often I tell people to make the thing that they wish existed in the world. That's one of the reasons I wrote Waking the Witch. There was not a book that I could find that was like this. And so I was like, mm, I guess I'll have to write it myself. On the same token, if you're not finding certain classes or certain papers or certain books that you wish existed in the world... Maybe it's because you need to embody it yourself and invent it yourself. So I think this can be a beautiful experience if you want to transmute it into one. I'm sorry that it happened and that it felt so crappy at the time. And I so admire and acknowledge you for being brave and trying to spread the good word of the witch. And now in terms of how I balance my academic career and my spiritual path, you know, that's something that you are going to have to figure out for yourself. Everyone does it differently. Some people, if they go down the route of academia, choose to be more cloaked and hidden. Other people are really out and proud witches and still write incredible papers and teach classes and write books. So I think you're just going to have to feel your way through it. I did not end up in academia in a formal way. I certainly love 
guest teaching. I love speaking at conferences and things like that. But, you know, I'm an indie witch, baby. And so it's a little bit less of a concern for me. But I totally understand why you're going to have to maybe, if you go down the route of academia, pick and choose who you share your practice with. Or another person I would mention to you is Margot Adler, who is a great example of someone who, when she was alive, she was a journalist, she was an NPR reporter, she also ended up writing an incredible anthropological book about the modern witchcraft movement called Drawing Down the Moon. Now, this was in 1979, but it still is extremely relevant and I think important for a lot of people to read if they're interested in the modern witchcraft movement. And Margot Adler became a high priestess of Wicca herself because she was so moved by what she was learning. So it is possible to be a serious professional and be a practicing witch, and I just know you're going to be able to figure out how to walk that line, even if the line is a little bit crooked and swirly, as the best witchcraft paths tend to be. Best witches and keep me posted. Now, on to my guest. Diana Rose is a relational astrologer, tarot reader, writer, and facilitator. Her practice aims to bring fellow humans into a more ferociously loving and compassionately honest relationship with themselves, the earth, and the heavens. She has been a three-time invited speaker at the Northwest Astrology Conference, is a repeat guest on the Astrology Podcast, and has been a guest on many, many, many other podcasts, including Jonathan Van Ness's Getting Curious. Diana also wrote a piece on Responsible Astrology for Wired, which is a must-read. She created the guidebook for the Rosebud Tarot, and she's the editor of Revelor Press's forthcoming Calliope series. Diana joined me from her home near the Angeles National Forest in Southern California via Zoom. Diana Rose, welcome to the Witch Wave. Hi, Pam. It's so wonderful to be here. It's so wonderful to get to talk with you. I've been a longtime admirer of your writing and your work, so it's a real pleasure. I actually want to start with your Twitter bio, and you might use this bio <laughs> elsewhere too, but it was very intriguing to me. You describe yourself as a relational astrologer falling in love with being human on Earth with help from the planets. Mm -hmm. And I think that's so charming, and it's also really descriptive. So can we break that down a little bit? What is a relational astrologer? What do you mean by that? Yeah. So relational astrologer as like a name that I've taken on, it's really interesting taking on this name came through my relationships with other astrologers, most notably Alice K. Augustine and Dr. Michael Morris, both of whom are deeply relational in their astrological and beyond astrology practices. And for people who are familiar with the concept of animism, mm. relationality is kind of a more broad but also more specific variant of animism, right? So with animism, one, there's a colonial history behind that word, that language being used as a derogatory towards 
specifically the indigenous people of Australia. That's my understanding of the history of that word. So it comes with a little bit of baggage. And it's descriptive of a worldview that is in contrast to the scientific materialist worldview that says everything that isn't human is a thing, is an object in some sense. And with that worldview that facilitates dominionism and exploitation and depersonalization, disenchantment of the world in a lot of ways. Mm. Whereas animism, in contrast, is saying that spirit or consciousness is eminent in all things, right? So relationalism, I don't think there is a school of philosophy that's along those lines, and this is a little bit different from that. But mm. when I say that I'm a relational astrologer, when my colleagues call themselves relational astrologers, we're taking that concept of animism, of looking towards the stars and the planets, but also the other than human beings who occupy Earth with us, like recognizing them as beings, but not stopping there. We're going towards being able to be in relationship with them, mm. right? So as a relational astrologer, in the work that I do, the orientation is let's be in relationship with and use these space rocks to understand ourselves, right? So it's less yeah. self-oriented and much more relationship-oriented. Yourself comes along whenever you're in a relationship. So it's not about turning away from the self or turning away from the self-knowledge that astrology provides, but it's the self-knowledge that begets relationship. Ooh, that is so gorgeous. And it's actually such a different answer than I was expecting mm. because I thought you were going to talk about like interpersonal relations, mm -mm. but you're talking about having relationships with the planets themselves. Yes. And I think with that, the cosmos, ooh, mm -hmm. that is powerful. How dreamy. And it's also like romantic. And oh, mm -hmm. I just think that really gets my imagination going. And okay, so the rest of this phrase, falling in love with being human on Earth with help from the planets. Mm -hmm. So this sounds like a really basic question, but I actually would love to hear in your own words, how do the planets help you personally? Mm. And of course, how can they help any of us? As a kid, I loved reading little horoscopes next to the Sunday comics, but really getting into it in college, it was this effort of how do I understand who I am and how do I understand other people and how do I figure out how to be a person around other people? So astrology, including the planets, but not only the planets, gives us language to comprehend our existential experiences. It gives us language to understand the stories of our lives. It gives us language to understand how it is that we're different in a way that isn't about hierarchy or better, worse, but rather just difference. As an example, it's like I have Mercury in Sagittarius. My partner has Mercury in Capricorn. There are certain ways of communicating that are very different for us. And yes. having a partner that also speaks astrology, we can identify like, oh, this is a Capricorn Sagittarius Mercury problem that we're having with our communication. So let's maybe back out of this particular conversation and come back whenever we can meet each other on each other's Mercury levels. That is a very direct way that Mercury specifically has actually assisted me in my communication with my partner, right? Relationship with Mercury improves relationship with human. Yes, yes. So 
I think another layer here is I'm a very 12th house person. So I have my sun, my moon, and my mercury all in the 12th house of the chart. And for listeners who are like, what the heck does that mean? That's the section of the sky that's just above the eastern horizon. And so experientially, this section of the sky is, you know, if you're addicted to coffee, this is the time between your alarm going off and you actually ingesting your first cup of joe. So you're kind of like half in the dream state and you're like half awake and you kind of don't really want anybody to talk to you because you're still figuring out what it means to exist. That's my kind of permanent state of being in a lot of ways. Wow, you're a liminal, liminal person. Mm -hmm. Very much. And that part of my chart is Sagittarius, so it's also a big adventure. Like, I love hanging out there. It's really fun. I have the wildest actual dreams and daydreams. Like, it's great. It's not always great for functioning in meat space. (laughs) (laughs) But with the language of astrology and with doing a lot of different explorations into the sun, into the moon, into Mercury, into Sagittarius, into the 12th house, that has allowed me to discern for myself what it means to feel comfortable inside of this human experience, inside of this human body. That's another 12th house thing. There's a lot of like, wait, do I want to be awake? Can I just go back to bed with, <laughs> That's so with 12th relatable. house planets? So relatable, mm-hmm. yes. With astrology, I can look at my chart and be like, oh, I just need to make sure I have enough 12th house time. That is resourcing for me. That supports me. That allows me to feel good mm-hmm. incarnational space. And what am I doing when I'm in that 12th house time? I'm going to do Mercury stuff and I'm going to do Moon stuff and I'm going to do Sun stuff because it's Sagittarius that's ruled by Jupiter. I'm also going to do some Jupiter stuff. So that's a very direct way that astrology and then thinking about engaging with the planets, like relating with the planets has helped me feel more comfortable in my body and in my personhood and in my work. And from there, that also improves all of my other relationships There's this very real component for relational astrology for me of cultivating planetary virtues of various kinds. Can you break that down a little bit? What does that mean? So planetary virtues, all of the planets are in charge of a suite of things from foods to flowers to stones to kinds of jobs to places on earth animals, etc. So correspondences we're talking about. Yeah, these are correspondences. Mm Mm-hmm. And sometimes it gets quite messy because plants are similar to humans in that they kind of have birth charts. They're not only owned by one planet. Wait, wait, wait. Can we pause on that? (laughs) We're talking about the astrology of plants. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. uh. So my friend of Maya Rourke and there's this person, Sarah Corbett and Sage Popham. There's a whole bunch of people who specialize specifically in astro herbalism or who have work in that area. And that's something that has very, 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 very deep history in human plant planet interaction. Sure. Okay. So you're Mm -hmm. talking about how certain plants have astrological correspondence. which I am familiar with. When you first mentioned it, I thought we were talking about like the birth chart of a plant, like when a specific plant sprouts or something like that. That's something that you can do, but it's more of a conceptual thing. Mm. For example, my middle name is Rose. Roses are like my patron plant in a lot of ways. And roses are most obviously Venusian because they're so beautiful and they are so fragrant. And they're used in cosmetics and all of that kind of thing. But also the thorns are super martial. And we have different like historical notes of like, you know, the flowers for Jupiter sometimes are indicated to be white roses or yellow roses. So there's some like interesting crossovers where it's not only Venus is in charge of roses. 
Yeah. Those correspondences are functional depending on what it is that you're trying to call forth. Just like right now I'm talking with you on a podcast. And so our Mercuries are meeting each other, but I'm not an overall mercurial person. Like I'm very Saturnian and I'm very Venusian. Ooh, that's a combo right there. Yeah. I feel like if we were breaking you down by the humors, you'd be like a sanguine melancholic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah. Depending on the calculations you use for the humors, I actually, by natally, I'm like perfectly balanced. It's really weird. But that actually just means that my environment really affects which one of those will be the most loud. Fascinating. Okay. Okay. I took us off on a (laughs) tangent. I actually want to circle back to the beginning and I'd like to go a little bit deeper in terms of Your offering of an astrological reading or just more broadly an astrological approach that is Mm -hmm. anti-colonialist, that is anti-fascist, anti-racist. These are all words that I know people who are trying to be more open hearted and more compassionate and more conscious are becoming more familiar with. But what Mm -hmm. does it look like to be an anti-fascist anti-colonialist, et cetera, astrologer. So one thing that I would like to recommend is Alice Sparkly Cat's post-colonial astrology as a text. I will be fully forthright and say that I have not completely read it, (laughs) but I know it does a really good job of looking at especially the Roman influence on Western astrology, quote unquote, so-called Western astrology. Man, there's so many layers to this because there's the awareness of astrological history which is extremely important. And it's one of the reasons why I'm a huge proponent of people doing what they can to learn traditional forms of astrology as a foundation of astrological understanding. One, it makes it a lot easier to understand a lot of things about astrology when you understand the baseline stones at the foundation of the practice. But two, it also helps to really complicate the stories of round astrology that exist. You know, I love humanistic and counseling and psychological astrologies. And also, they're within psychological astrologies, we're importing the mechanistic view of the human soul. And we're also importing a lot of ideas around what a good human or an individuated human should be, which are very, very saturated with supremacist thought and patriarchal thought. Yes, yes. Super saturated with those things. There's also a lot of gender binarism that happens. But when we look at the history of astrology, we're looking also at the time around Alexander the Great, quote unquote, Hellenistic astrology emerges. And that's an extremely multicultural blend. It's not just Greek. It's like the entire Mediterranean area, like including, you know, going into like Turkey and beyond. And there was a lot of conversation happening from the Indian subcontinent into the Mediterranean area and around North Africa at that time. Sure. You know, when you study traditional astrology and then you also get some exposure to, say, Jyotish, which is Vedic astrology, you start to see, oh, a lot of these techniques are the same, but we're just not using the Sanskrit terms for them. Mm-hmm. And they've mm-hmm. been a little bit clunkified in certain ways. I'm sorry. I just want to pause us because for listeners who might not have thought about these concepts before or who are Mm -hmm. teasing them out, I want to state the obvious, which is astrological practice exists in virtually every culture that I'm aware of. So I think that the average American layperson Mm -hmm may assume that astrology, yeah, it comes from Greek orientation. You know, we're talking about often Greek names 
if I'm correct, mm-hmm. for constellations Greek and Roman, and Roman yeah. shore, depending on what language we're using and what myths we're talking about. But clearly, there is astrology from mm-hmm. all over the world. So <laughs> let's just like make sure we put a flag in that for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Chinese astrology has some really interesting different interpretations of the constellations and stars and things like that. There's a lot of really interesting things coming out of Peru. I know somebody who's working on Ojibwe astrological perspectives. Mm. There's so much there. And I think one of the important things too, even when we're looking at like Roman and Greek, is understanding that a lot of the European supremacist project was the literal whitewashing of the multi-ethnic, multicultural realities of Greece and the Roman Empire, right? The Roman Empire was not a singular people. And part of why the Roman Empire was so successful was it continuously allowed for multiplicity within its domain. And it started collapsing whenever it became really fascist. (laughs) Right. Hello. Thank you very much. Can we also just kind of like underline this point, which you write about so beautifully? I've read a bunch of articles and essays that you've written. And I believe you say this in your bio, too, which is essentially Mm -hmm. the notion that And I think you were kind of referencing this or pointing to this at the beginning of our conversation around animism, which Mm -hmm. is, I think, the idea that spirit exists in everything and that there is more to the world than meets the eye, that there are supernatural occurrences or energies that we can plug into. We can call it magic, whatever language we want to use, that in the West, Many people talk about those things as being other or exotic Mm -hmm. or weird. Mm -hmm. But in fact, so many cultures have language and structures which acknowledge that as completely normal. So for us to treat the quote unquote supernatural as like odd and other is inherently kind of colonialist, wouldn't you say? Yes. (laughs) Yes, 100%. 100%. The separation of human from the rest of Earth ecology is the colonial project because that separation is what allows for exploitation, objectification, pillaging, (laughs) you know, like all of these different things. And so that's one of the things that I will talk about is what does it mean to be human on Earth? Like part of being human on Earth is reoccupying the spiritual and physical niches that humans are supposed to be occupying, the physical and the metaphysical niches that humans belong in, right? So this is like not the eco-fascist like humans are the virus. And it also isn't the how humans will fix the planet. No, 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 no. Humans are supposed to be in multifaceted and multiform relationship with the other than human of all different kinds. Yes. Yes. Visible and invisible, tangible and intangible. And astrology is actually a really wonderful way to identify different levels of that on an individual level. And then even just paying attention to collective transits like mundane astrology, that also helps to sort of paint pictures of where we are on the clock and how we can engage with the mm, unmeasurable according to dogmatic scientism, but still very present um, energies, electricities, like whatever you want to call it, that we're all swimming in at the same time. Beautiful. On that note, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. 
Black Phoenix Alchemy Lab is a specialty fragrance house currently celebrating its 20th year, now based in Philadelphia. Black Phoenix Alchemy Lab specializes in formulating body and household blends with a dark, romantic, gothic tone. And over the years, they've collaborated with so many of my heroes, including Neil Gaiman, Guillermo del Toro, and the Jim Henson Company. They continually return to inspirations drawn from history, mythology, literature, pop culture, and fine art, and they have a sister store called Twilight Alchemy Lab that creates oils blended and consecrated specifically for use in witchcraft and ritual magic. Keep up with their latest seasonal perfume releases by looking them up on social media. And Black Phoenix Alchemy Lab also now has a YouTube channel where they share scent reviews, announcements, and original video art. Perfume archives and customer reviews going back many years can be found at the fanrun bpal.org web forum. And of course, you can order all of Black Phoenix Alchemy Lab's decadent perfumes, oils, and more at blackphoenixalchemylab.com. The Witch Wave is sponsored by BetterHelp. I often think about trying to aspire to be the best version of myself. And I know that I can reach that best version or at least a better version of myself when I am taken care of, when I've taken steps for self-care through things like sleep and eating and of course my magical practice, and also when I am in therapy. Yes, indeed, I have been a huge fan of therapy, a huge proponent of therapy, a huge consumer of therapy for most of my adult life, and it has absolutely helped me become a better version of myself, a more healthy version, a more emotionally nourished version, a more self-actualized version of myself. And I truly believe that I wouldn't be able to do all that I'm able to do without therapy having been such a big part of my life. I wish everybody could go to therapy. I wish everybody would go to therapy. Therapy has helped me develop coping skills for when I feel overwhelmed and stressed or when some post-traumatic stress disorder stuff kicks in for me. And it's helped me feel more self-empowered because I have taken steps to focus on myself, to focus on my needs, to focus on my development with somebody who is there for just me in those sessions. And that's something I think everybody could benefit from and that everybody deserves. I think the world could be a better place if everybody took care of their mental health. And remember, you don't have to have some huge trauma or drama that you're going through in your life. Therapy is just good for everyday maintenance to help you clear out some of those worries and anxieties and stresses so that you then have more bandwidth to do the things in your life that you really want to do and for you to become the person that you are meant to become. 
If you're at all curious about therapy, BetterHelp is a great option because it is more convenient and more accessible than so many other offerings out there. It's affordable and it's entirely online so you can communicate with your BetterHelp therapist from virtually anywhere. All you have to do to get started is fill out a brief questionnaire online, and then you'll get matched with a licensed therapist that's hopefully right for you. But if not, you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge because BetterHelp wants you to find that right match. So if you want to live a more empowered life, therapy can get you there. Visit BetterHelp.com slash WitchWave today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash WitchWave. Take care of yourself and live the life you're meant to. Hi, Witch Wavers. I have exciting news. At long last, we have some new Witch Wave merch available for you now through Tee Public. We decided to go with Tee Public for our new Witchwave merch because it is a print-on-demand site, which means you can get different variations of the Witchwave logo printed on t-shirts, mugs, totes, stickers, magnets, notebooks. Oh my gods, the sky's the limit. And the shirts come in different styles and fabrics and colors and are available in sizes small through 5XL so you can order whatever you'll feel you're most magical in. So head on over to witchwavepodcast.com slash shop. Welcome back to The Witch Wave. Today I'm speaking with Diana Rose. So Diana, we're talking very broadly and theoretically about astrology. I'd love to talk about some of the applications of it. Mm -hmm. One of the questions that I have, which I did ask on Twitter recently, and you did weigh in a little bit, but I would still love to break this down. Mm -hmm. I grew up feeling very proud of my sun sign. I am an Aquarius. I grew up reading my Aquarian horoscope and I really relate to being an Aquarius. And then as I got older, I learned more about rising signs and moon signs and all of the different intricacies that inform one's full picture of their Mm -hmm. astrological makeup. And for listeners, if you're curious, my moon is in cancer and I am a Gemini rising. And now, in the last few years, along comes lots of astrologers who say, hey, your sun sign, that's great. But actually, if you want to read your horoscope every day or every week, you should actually be paying attention to your rising sign Mm -hmm. and read the horoscope for your rising sign. And so then I'm like, well, what the fuck? Should I like be more into like my Gemini vibes then and be paying more attention to reading my Gemini? And and, and if so, am I ignoring any kind of like horoscope action and information for Aquarius, my sun sign? Anyway, you get my question and I'd love to hear you explain that a little bit if you please. Yes, yes absolutely. So Historically speaking, like deep history, when people ask what your what your sign is, they would usually mean your rising sign because the rising sign literally sets up the structure of the rest of your chart. So one of the ways that I describe this to clients and things like that is the rising, like the actual ascendant degree, that is a little bitty slice of zodiac that is emerging from the underworld. 
into the visible waking world in the place where you are born, which is to say the same place where you are emerging from the underworld of the womb of the person who gestated you. So you and that little degree of Zodiac have this very intimate coming into the world relationship that will stay with you for your entire life. That is the most sensitive part in your chart. Like if you only want to look at one thing by transit, it's something going over your ascendant. It's a synonym That's that for degree. rising sign. Your, yes. your ascendant is your rising sign. To get really technical, right? The ascendant <laughs> is the exact degree and minute of the zodiac sign that is rising. Okay. And then your ascendant is always inside of your overall rising sign, which is the 30 degrees of zodiac sign within which your ascendant resides. Does wow. that make sense? Yes. Astrologers are such fucking nerds. Oh my <laughs> gosh. Okay. Keep yeah. going. Keep going. We're total dorks. And I We're say that dorks. with complete love and admiration. Yeah. Okay. Keep yeah. going. We're total dorks. I mean, but usually when people say their <laughs> ascendant or their rising sign, they mean basically the same thing, but okay. that exact degree is the most sensitive part in your chart. Okay. So that sets up the structure of the rest of your chart. It determines how the zodiac signs are tied to the houses in your chart. And the houses are, you know, it's one through 12 in counterclockwise order. They're always in that order. They always have the same cluster of meanings around each house. Each house is an area of life. And what zodiac sign is attached to which house tells you what planet is responsible for which house. It also says whenever there's a transit, you know, it's like as a Gemini rising, every transit through Sagittarius is also a transit through the seventh house of your chart, which is your one-to-one -one relationships. Okay. What does that mean? <laughs> so, you know, that's like Sagittarius season might be a season where you've maybe met a lot of cool besties or maybe even met your partner, depending on other factors in your chart. My husband's sun sign is Sagittarius. Is that, that also relevant? absolutely okay. relevant. Absolutely right. relevant because the seventh house, whenever you really deeply analyze the seventh house, you're going to get a good picture about, you know, how you do relationships, what kinds of people you're relating with, what qualities and other people you really value, things like that. Like Gemini Risings, love Sagittarius is because Gemini Risings are like, I want to collect all of the different information. I really enjoy having all of this information. And actually, yes. it makes me feel safe whenever I feel like I have a whole collection of different kinds of pollen that I can distribute. Oh, oh yes. It's so nice. And then Sagittarius <laughs> comes in and is just like, I see that you have a collection of pollen. Do you know the meaning of pollen? Right. And the Gemini Rising is like, Oh my God. Yes. Tell me the meaning of pollen, right? It's really great, right? Mm. The rising sign sets up that structure. And there's something about, you know, it's like, why are Gemini risings like that? It's just like, oh, well, they have an Aquarius ninth house. You have the sun in the house of its joy. The sun loves to be in the ninth house. Doesn't matter what sign it is. The sun okay. loves to be in the ninth house. Okay. Gemini risings, actually, there's like a lot of luminosity available to them in, a, in engaging with ninth house topics, that is to say, spirituality, philosophy, meaning making in the world in an Aquarian way, which is like, what are the big structures that surround this? What are the frameworks and worldviews that surround how people might engage with these smaller topics? Yes, That's where your yes, sun is. So it makes yes. so much sense that you would love that. Ah. So listen, I I'm feeling sheepish because I do not want you to be giving yeah. me like a free <laughs> reading when I this just, is your vocation. I, but, yes. but I so appreciate mm -hmm. you using my chart to kind of illustrate this. And I mm -hmm. guess for listeners, I want to bring the point back. Is there any point in us reading our sun sign horoscope? Yes. So the rising sign horoscope, mm. rising, like reading based on your rising sign, will be more directly concrete as in your con into your concrete life. If you were born during the daytime, 
reading your sun sign horoscope is going to grant you some amount of insight into sort of your, mm, how do I put this? So reading from the ascendant is like reading from your embodiment, your coping strategies, your survival mechanisms, your existential needs in the world. That's the perspective from which you are reading the horoscope. Okay. When you read from the sun sign as a day birth, especially. Which I am. That's you reading from sort of the seat of your heart, the seat of the center of yourself. So it's not so much about like your external world necessarily, but it'll be reflective of like your orientation if you think about your heart as a compass. Okay. Okay. And then if you read from your moon sign, especially if you were born at night, because for nighttime babies, the moon becomes a little bit more important than the sun. When you read from the moon sign, that's kind of reading from your needs and tendencies on emotional, physical levels. So all three of those can be really interesting and relevant. And you can even play with, you know, if you're really familiar with your chart, you can read from your other planet signs. So if you read from the Venus sign perspective, then you're reading from the perspective of like your desire to be in union with what it is that you're attracted to, what you attract, that kind of thing. If you read from the Mars sign perspective, maybe you're reading more from the like, I need to take action. I need to, you know, or I'm dealing with conflict. And so when you read from the Mars sign position, that helps you to kind of see things from that Mars perspective. Does that make sense? It does make sense. Can you talk about if people in the past used to really center their astrological readings on people's rising signs, mm -hmm. then why do we all now default mm. usually to reading our sun sign? Like what happened mm -hmm. there historically? You know, people are so into their sun signs now. People mm -hmm. buy t-shirts like, mm -hmm. I'm an Aquarius, yay. So is that just us being fools? Do you know what I'm saying? Mm, not entirely. How did this happen? How did we get into yeah. this sun sign over-relation and over-popularization? So here in the so-called West, there was this thing called the so-called Enlightenment. I don't heard know if you guys of it. Heard of it. Heard of it. <laughs> <laughs> it was a moment in intellectual history that really demarcated the break away from an enchanted world and into a disenchanted philosophical perspective as sort of the dominant hegemonic worldview. Sure. And as a consequence of that, here in the so-called West, this did not happen in India and China and other places that have more continuous lineages of astrological practice. In Europe and England, and also in the United States, that really cut off, you know, and this is also in the aftermath of Catholic and Christian diminishment, we will mm -hmm. say, mm -hmm. of these practices, mm -hmm. in the most diplomatic way to say it. Yes, very. There was a break in lineage. There were like basically no astrologers around. It was very hard to go get your chart cast by a professional. And prior to computers and things like that, you know, it's a lot of math. It's a lot of geometry. You have to have, you know, ascension you tables. You have to and be a fucking nerd. I'm you have to be a again. total dork, man. <laughs> like it's some dweeb stuff, right? I so love it. I love it. Then in the early 1900s, you know, this is after the spiritualist movement. This is around the time that like Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn stuff and there's just sure. like various fascinations of spiritualism, like all of that kind of stuff is filtering into the public and people are fascinated. And newspaper guys are like, what if we started doing horoscopes? And it's like, well, the average Joe isn't going to know the rising sign these days because the rising. All 12 zodiac signs rise over the eastern horizon every 24-ish hours, but they do it at different speeds depending on how close or far you are to the equator and what time of year it is. Sure. So math, it's very mathy. Yeah. <laughs> However, the sun is what dictates our calendar. 
generally speaking, you know, like so today is February the 10th that we are recording this particular episode. Mm -hmm. And every single year using the Gregorian calendar on February the 10th, the sun is going to be in Aquarius. Right. Guaranteed. So you can know your sun sign without doing any math. Unless you were born very close to a transition between solar seasons, that varies a little bit. And that's where actually having an exact birth time and actually looking in an ephemeris, which is a table of planetary positions, is really handy. There's no such thing as a cusp. It's either 11.59 a.m. or it's 12 p.m. There's not squish mm -hmm. in between, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because the sun sign is so easy to identify, it's become the default thing that people identify with even for people born at night who will probably resonate more deeply with their moon sign, the moon changes signs every two and a half days. Mm -hmm. If you got a farmer's almanac, you can figure that stuff out. Sure. But it's still nowhere near as easy as the sun sign. Okay. So to summarize, the reason mm -hmm. that we all now really associate mostly with our sun signs, the reason why that's the mm -hmm. most popular is because someone in the 19th century was doing some kind of like poppy... Yes. Let me write people's horoscopes and bring this back and I'll just yep. water it down and dumb it down yes. for the masses. And mm -hmm. that's just stuck with people. Yep. Because again, it remains the easiest thing and it is a very successful format in publishing, right? When, it, when you look at newspapers and magazines, the horoscopes are just, if you were born between these dates, this is the one that you read. You don't mm -hmm. have to do any math. You just have to know your birthday. That's mm -hmm. it. So for listeners who, and I can't imagine there are a ton of them, but I'm sure there are some. For listeners who don't know their moon sign, their rising mm -hmm. sign, all their other planetary placements, where do you point people other mm -hmm. than obviously having a professional reading with you? Are there certain apps or things mm -hmm. that you would recommend if they just want a baseline understanding of their chart? Yes. So the one app at this point that I recommend consistently is Chani. Yes. Oh, it's so good. Chani is rooted in traditional astrology. She was mentored by Demetra George, who was like a patron saint of traditional astrology. She's a living saint. She's incredible. I actually contributed to the first iteration of the Chani app. Oh, how fabulous. So when you go in and read your Venus sign, I think it's still my writing. <laughs> Beautiful. It's been Literally. a minute since I checked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How cool. So it's deeply rooted in traditional astrology and also manages to be very accessible. So even if you're not deeply interested in studying, you're going to be receiving insight that is rooted in the foundations of astrology, which is going to make a process of osmosis over time. The more you engage with it, the more robust your understanding will be. And it will be a robust that's like really nutritive. I know Chani on her website has a chart generator. Mm -hmm. It's really easy to use. You just put in date, time, location of birth. You get your chart put out for you. Yes. Yes. The other thing that I will recommend is astro.com has some really interesting like kind of free interpretation stuff that's more rooted in modern astrology. I've never felt like I want to get in an argument over astro.com's delineations, but <laughs> there are other delineations out there that I'm definitely just like where did you come up with that? Yeah. Yeah. Because I think that's wrong. <laughs> there's, a, there's a running joke that a group of astrologers is called a disagreement. So <laughs> I love that. 
But yeah, those would be the two main recommendations for people who want to get a little bit more in the weeds with it. It's definitely worth investing in the more bonus version. Like the pro version. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The subscription version, you'll get a lot more insight into it. Yeah. Jenny's book is really great for beginners. If you want to get into beginner traditional astrology, the astrology yep. podcast is absolutely the most robust free resource on traditional astrology out there these days. I'm so happy to hear you endorse what she does because mm -hmm. I have the app and I think she's yeah. great, but I'm also like, what do mm -hmm. I know? So yeah, that, that's a real ringing endorsement. Okay. As a professional astrologer rooted in traditional astrology, it remains the only app that I strongly recommend to especially beginners. Yes. So for listeners, if you haven't heard of Chani before, I, I'm a little shocked, <laughs> yeah. but it's spelled C-H-A-N-I. So there you go. On that note, we're going to take another quick break and we'll be right back. Ooh, I am very excited to tell you about Bloom. Bloom is an audio platform setting a new standard for pleasure with steamy, intimate stories, guides, and relaxation content dedicated to helping you explore what really turns you on. The different types of content that Bloom offers include Bloom Intimates, which are plot-based audio stories with multiple characters, Bloom Play Sessions, which include dirty talk role-playing sessions and guided pleasure sessions for couples or just for yourself, and Bloom Wind Downs, which are Bloom's relaxation content, which includes meditations and sleep soundscapes. And you're probably going to need them after getting all revved up from everything else that Bloom offers. Bloom also has some really fun features like a reader function, so you can follow along with the story or read without the audio anytime. They also have a spicy indicator that shows you exactly when the hot action starts. And premium users can submit their fantasies to the writing team for a chance to see their desires brought to life in a Bloom story. And everyone can listen to a sample of every story for free on Bloom's website. And if you want to upgrade to their premium offer, you can save 20% on a monthly subscription or 50% on an annual subscription by using promo code WITCHWAVE. So check Bloom out at www.bloomstories.com. And don't forget to use offer code WITCHWAVE for your premium subscription discount. Do these cold, dark winter days have you feeling a bit less magical? Well, there are tools to help keep your inner flame warm and glowing. Of course, I am talking about Mithras candles. These pure beeswax lights are inspired by the modern science of photobiology, along with ancient pagan practices and cosmic mysteries. Mithras candles are handmade by my mythic and scientific pals in Philadelphia and come in traditional golden yellow and sensual black hues with unique colors and collaborations popping up seasonally. 
you will be addicted like I am once you experience the gorgeous Byzantine hand-dripped style of a Mithras candle and their honeyed floral aroma. So go to MithrasCandle.com now and pick up the perfect candle for your midwinter moments. And Witchwave listeners get 18% off their first order by using offer code WITCH at checkout. That's offer code WITCH at Mithras Candle. That's M as in magic, I-T-H-R-A-S, candle.com. Would you like even more Witchwave? Do you wish you could hear from me and my other bewitching guests on a weekly basis? Then come join us on Patreon, where you'll get bi-weekly bonus Witchwave Plus episodes, ad-free Witchwave episodes, and detailed show notes for all. Rewards for some tiers also include magical merch and contests where you can win witchly prizes each month, as well as early heads up about my workshops before they sell out. And all backers get access to our exclusive digital coven, where I lead monthly online rituals and where you can connect to a community of other wonderful witch wave witches around the world. So head on over to patreon.com slash witchwave and sign up. It's a fabulous way to get more magic in your life and to support the show. Thank you so much. Welcome back to The Witch Wave. Today I'm speaking with Diana Rose. So here's another question that I have been pondering. Obviously, astrology is... It feels like it's more popular than ever, but clearly I don't know how popular it was many hundreds of years ago, but it's very, very popular. It's having a huge moment as we know. And one of the things that I see people share online a lot are the charts of celebrities or prominent Mm -hmm. people. And I was thinking back to when AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, was I think she was running for the house for the first time. And she released her birth time because astrologers Mm -hmm. really wanted to know. And I thought it was so cool of her, (laughs) but also a real kind of marker of this new generation who is into astrology or at least appreciates astrology in this Mm -hmm. more public way. So what do you think of publicizing people's charts and this Mm -hmm. desire that people seem to have to want to break down different celebrity or public figure kind of charts and horoscopes in general? Yeah, I have a lot of ambivalence about it. Mm -hmm. Um, There are some gnarly ethical questions that arise when you're looking at someone's chart without consent. Right? Because it's so personal. It's so personal. And it's one of these things too, where like the deeper you go into your astrological studies, the more you understand how much you can see in someone's chart. Like sometimes people joke, don't send me a nude, send me your astrology chart. (laughs) And like in a lot of ways, there is so much that you can see in someone's chart. Depending on the techniques that you're using, it's like you can see, was their father unfaithful to their mom? Mm. You can see, does this person have eating disorder issues or have like disordered eating things going on? How does this person navigate insecurity? Mm. You might not be able to say in this moment what it is. But you can see like, okay, so based on what I can see in your chart, 
this either has been an issue or will be an issue or maybe currently is an issue again depending on the techniques that you're using you can see like oh it seems like there was maybe a lot of spiciness at home when you were a kid well what kind of spiciness right was your were your parents like blacksmiths or were they really violent mm. There's stuff that you can see in a chart that somebody probably would not tell you of their own volition outside of an appropriately structured conversational container, mm. right? And there's also like on the other side, especially looking at biographies of people who have passed on, looking at their charts alongside their biographies is one of the most incredible educational tools for understanding how astrology works or how different techniques work. There's a timing technique that I have become obsessed with called decennials or planetary decades. It's more advanced. Don't worry about it. But my teacher, Austin Kopic, I know it. Austin. Oh, that's so great. He's my main teacher. Okay. Oh, what a brilliant person. Whenever he was teaching decennials or planetary decades, he was using the life and chart of Octavia Butler to demonstrate this technique. That's incredible, especially when you're looking at the chart of somebody whose life has ended already and whose works are part of public cultural influence. Living people, I feel really like about it. Mm. And like there are some people who there's idea of ambulance chasing, like astrological ambulance chasing. Somebody gets injured or dies and immediately people are looking at their chart in public. And I feel this way, honestly, too, sometimes about when a huge disaster mm -hmm. happens where on the one hand, I appreciate when astrologers kind of weigh in. Mm -hmm. On another hand, I personally am turned off by astrologers who are like, I told you so, or like, of right. course this terrible thing happened yeah. because of these planets. But, 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 but there's almost like a smugness to it. Right. There's a salacious kind of slavering over the disaster yes. thing. And I'm like, that, wow. Oh, wow. I really, <laughs> mm -mm. Mm -hmm. it feels extremely disrespectful. And, you know, going back to the relational component, are you approaching these people as actual humans? Yeah. Or are you treating them like objects that are under your microscope? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's like the same reason as somebody who dates, right? Like I do not, I avoid at all costs looking at a potential date or an, a person I'm dating's chart. <gasps> you do? Until I've gotten to know them because I want to get to know them for who they are. And I don't want them to feel like I am just projecting my assumptions about them on them based on their chart. So when do you ask them for their information? I feel like for you, that's a real sign you're super interested. Honestly, I wait for them to tell me. I don't ask. Really? I don't ask. Wow. As a professional astrologer, I do not ask. I might be real tempted. <laughs> I might do a little bit of like brain sleuthing about it. Mm -hmm. I might have my hypotheses ready to go. <laughs> yeah. But I don't, I don't ask because for me, one, it's my job. Yeah. Two, like one of the things that people will take issue with with astrology is the way that people use it to categorize and project onto other people, often in ways that are really ungenerous yes. and caging. I have a Sagittarius moon. I don't believe in cages. Get me the fuck out of them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I don't want to do that to other people either. Like I want to meet them. I want to be fascinated by them. And then I want to be able, if we get to that point, to in hindsight, look back on things that have happened or aspects of our conversations and be able to be like, wow, that makes so much sense. Mm. The one exception to this rule is if I know somebody has Pisces placements, since Neptune has been passing through Pisces, mm -hmm. if somebody has Pisces placements or Virgo placements especially, Neptune 
really makes things super wibbly wobbly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so if I know someone has Pisces placements, know for sure that will definitely affect how seriously I take some of the things that they talk about with me. Neptune just makes everything really foggy and misty. Interesting. I will keep that in mind, but it won't like be something where I'm just like completely dismissing someone because of it. You don't kind of subscribe to that school of thought that's like, oh, I would never date a blank. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And I think that whenever people are like, oh, I would never date a blank, what they're actually doing is avoiding their own self-work. Hot take. Tell me more, please. If you have a deep issue with a particular sign because of either one person or maybe even a set of people, that is an excellent opportunity for you to turn to yourself and your own chart. And what about those, that sign, the planet that rules that sign, are sort of archetypal or human qualities that you haven't dealt with within yourself? Oh, fuck yes. This is what I am talking about. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, that is so, so rich. So listen, you wrote a beautiful article for Wired Magazine, I believe Mm -hmm. it was last year called How Do You Practice Responsible Astrology? And I highly recommend people read it. But one of the things you say, I think, towards the beginning of the essay is, I personally don't believe in astrology. I practice it. So with the last few moments we have together, can you talk about how do you think about whether or not astrology is, quote unquote, real if it's something we should believe in or not believe in, Mm -hmm. if it's something that we should engage with from a rational point of view or an imaginative point of view, like anything that comes to mind when you say that you practice astrology, you don't believe in it. Yeah. I mean, I think it's kind of similar to like, do you believe in yoga or do you practice yoga? Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. If you practice yoga, which this is totally me subtweeting myself about how I am out of practice. <laughs> <laughs> if you practice yoga, you understand what the effects are on your mind and body. And it's not about whether or not you believe that yoga can do things. It's witnessing the consequences of doing. Mm-hmm. So it's similar with astrology. I practice astrology. I learn about the tradition. I learn about the techniques. I put the techniques in practice. I talk with people. I witness things while also witnessing the sky. And I have a visceral understanding that I might not always be able to articulate, but that is present. It's physical. It's not just cognitive, like, oh, yeah, that's totally this and that and whatever. I believe that it's doing this thing. Given what I understand about the deep tradition and what people have been saying about things like this for millennia, Mm -hmm. (laughs) given what's happening now or what I'm talking about with this person in front of me, is this actionable? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Astrology can be very mystical. It can be very spiritual, right? It doesn't have to be part of your spiritual practice. For me, it's a very core column in the temple of my spiritual practice you should you yes. could say it's yes. it's load bearing it's a load bearing wall <laughs> <laughs> oh i love right? that metaphor but it doesn't have to be right like there are people who only use astrology from a super super technical perspective they're not trying to get into the mysticism or the spirituality or whatever it's totally fine it works just like actually doing whatever amount of like physical movement that is available to you on a daily basis like over time you will get a different level of motion Mm -hmm. in your body. Mm -hmm. It just, it works. It works. It's useful. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. Yep. 
that's great. I really appreciate that perspective. For the last question that I have, I have to say I'm divided. Part of me Mm -hmm. wants to ask you, is there any like astrological nugget or kernel you feel called to share about 2023, just about the Mm -hmm. year ahead? And then another part of me, this feels very Gemini, doesn't it? Another part of me (laughs) is like, well, what do you feel called to share in our last moments together? Maybe Mm -hmm. narrowing it down to this specific year is too limiting. So is there anything that is coming to you that you feel would be useful for our listeners today? Mm. I think the thing that feels like it wants to be shared you know, like the past couple of years of astrology and this year and the next couple of years, we are in a time period of, I don't know if you've noticed, massive change. (laughs) Gee, what do you mean? Massive change. (laughs) Yes. One of the things that I think astrology can bring us into, especially if we are open and curious and investigative and really trying to move towards self-knowledge and self-clarity, I think really being able to understand that while the changes that are occurring in the world right now are really scary, there are also excellent opportunities to kind of shake free from old dreams and enter into truer dreams. And dreams are chaotic neutral. Like they go from like really sweet, like, oh my God, I dreamed about my like having tea in Italy with my best friend. It was so nice, right? They can be really sweet. Mm. They can also be so disturbing, so disruptive. And I really think that this is a time, you know, Saturn's entering Pisces in March. Pluto is dipping into Aquarius for a hot minute for a couple of months this year. Jupiter is zooming through Aries and then it's going to land solidly in Taurus. One of the things that I've been thinking about for years, honestly, but that I think is important to share is it's a time to use your imagination wisely. Mm. And astrology, when you engage with it, is like from a perspective of how is it that I can use my imaginative faculties wisely and constructively? Your chart tells you what that means for you. Uh, I mean, I'm like... My cells, I feel like, are vibrating. That is such powerful wisdom. Thank you so much for sharing that. I love that. That resonates for me on like the deepest, most core level. Listen, I know people are going to be falling in love with you. They're going to want to learn from you. They're going to want to have their chart read from you. I know you have workshops that you offer. Mm -hmm. What is the best way for people to connect with you, work with you, and get more of your cosmic wisdom? The most immediate thing that people can do that also costs zero dollars is just like scrolling through my Instagram. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And what is your handle? It's Damashena, and that is D-D-A-M-A-S-C-E-N-A-A. I apologize. I know it's hard to spell. (laughs) All good. All good. The next best thing people could probably do, especially if they want to go deeper, On my website, damashena.com, you can also go to dianaroseharper.com. It'll take you to the same place. I think I currently have seven workshops and lectures, like recordings that are available. Many of them are accessible to people no matter what level of astrology they are currently familiar with. Some of them are more aimed at astrology enthusiasts and students that are trying to go deep. That's probably the next most immediate thing. Next most immediate thing is joining my Patreon, patreon.com slash damashena. I do live chats every month and there's a backlog of writing and videos and little audios. 
that people will probably find nourishing. And Patreon is also the way that you get a session on my calendar. I open up my calendar quarterly these days. And I open them to Patreon patrons first, and I have the idea that I will open it to the public, but usually my Patreon patrons take all the spots before I get to that point. So. Mm, mm, how fabulous. How fabulous. Well, listen, I have such a love for people who can talk about spirituality with just like bright, shining intellects. And mm. I just think you are brilliant and so inspiring. So this was such a treat for me. Thank you so much, Diana, for taking the time to speak with me today. It's been an absolute honor and a delight. I'm going to go hide blushing under my desk now. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, have some more coffee while you're there. Thank yeah. you so much, Diana. Thank you. That's it for the show. Thank you again to Diana Rose for sharing her cosmic magic with me. Do you have questions, feedback, need some witchly advice, or just want to share something magical that happened to you recently? Drop us an email at witchwavepodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you, and you just might make it on the Witchwire. The Witch Wave is a phantasmophile production written and produced by me, Pam Grossman. This episode was recorded and edited by Josh Wilcox and myself. Our theme music is the song Hand and Eye by Lycanthia. Our new Witch Wave logo was designed by Thunderwing. Special thanks go to Matt Freeman, Laura Antal, and Cece Pascal. You can check out information about this and other episodes on our website and now buy Witchwave merch at witchwavepodcast.com. Please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app and give us lots and lots of sparkly stars. It really, truly makes a difference and helps other people find the show. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at witchwavepod. And you can check out my witch emoji for iPhone by going to witchemoji.com or downloading it in the App Store. Please consider ordering my book, Witchcraft, and or picking up my book, Waking the Witch, which are both available everywhere now. And if you want more Witch Wave or you would just like to support the show, please join us over on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash witchwave. Thank you so much for listening. Witches are the future. I'll catch you next time on The Witch Wave.